0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show again. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado on... June 10th, 2021. This is episode 75 of season 3, episode 140 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today we're going to talk about part 2 of the series, and this is why we got married. And I want to start off with a reflection on the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. I found in reading the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, that I've especially enjoyed the parts where Grant talks about his relationship with President Lincoln. And within their interactions that Grant recounts, I found particularly amusing the fact that Grant pledges to the president at one point amidst a statement of his general intentions for prosecuting the war against the Confederate armies, that he would endeavor to not annoy the president. A little later, however, Grant moves on to trying to execute his plans for defeating the South in battle. And one thing he says he was trying to do with regards to the generals and armies of his enemy is annoy them. So also with marriage, our goal ought to be to not unnecessarily Annoy our spouse in the prosecution of our battles and wars, but our goal should be to annoy our enemy. Our spouse should not be our enemy, but we do have an enemy. And sometimes we don't always get along with our spouse. In my case, my wife, Lauren, sometimes I don't always get along with her. Sometimes we quarrel and we bicker and we disagree and we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes that's because I'm being annoying. And yes, sometimes that's because she's being annoying. Love is not irritable. So I should not be easily annoyed. And neither should she. Simple things should not set us off. We shouldn't get upset about trivial matters. But we should remember that we do have an enemy and we're told in the text to be sober and vigilant for our adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour that is to say implicitly that we have an adversary and not only do we have an adversary but we have an adversary which is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he wants to devour us god's not going to let that happen if our names are written in the book of life but He will harass us if he can. He will annoy us if he can. And so part of our task in not being devoured as it is, such as it is the potential by our adversary, is that we are on a war footing. We are sober and vigilant. We are watchful for opportunities that he might have to set us off and to annoy us unnecessarily and we're also careful to not take friendly fire or to offer it in turn. We need to know the difference between friend and foe and given that the topic at hand is marriage we need to recognize that our spouse is not our enemy. Our spouse is there as a blessing. Marriage is a blessing. I will maintain that throughout this series, and I intend to maintain that position throughout my life. When Lauren and I first decided to get married, we had a choice to make of when. And one of the things that we settled on was getting married on November 25th. So November 25th, 2006, that's when we got married. And it wasn't just that we like the month of November. I was born in November, November 5th, Guy Fawkes Day. But it wasn't that we just wanted to get married in the month that I was born, and it wasn't just that we liked the month November. We got married November 25th because we wanted every year for our anniversary to fall in the same week as Thanksgiving. And the reason we wanted our anniversary anniversary to fall on the week of Thanksgiving is that I grew up with parents who ended up getting divorced when I was about 13 and I did not see them and the example that they set as demonstrating that marriage is a blessing. Even when they were married before they got divorced, I didn't see them approaching it as a blessing. A marriage that fails is obviously not seen by one or the other party as being a net good that's why marriages fall apart is because one or both parties don't believe that the benefit is worth the cost and maybe sometimes they're right but only ever because one or both parties have decided to conduct themselves in a way which demonstrates they don't believe marriage is a blessing They don't honor their marriage. They don't bless their marriage. They don't bless their spouse. They treat their spouse as an annoyance, as an encumbrance, as a hindrance to what life is really supposed to be about, whatever that is. Fill in the blank. Our spouse is not supposed to be a means to an end, even though our spouse is supposed to be helpful in more than just... Blessing our marriage. Marriage might be a means to the end of honoring God, to being fruitful and multiplying, to having someone to call your very own so that you're not tempted to go chasing after persons who are not your own. Marriage might be a means to the end of loving God because God has brought someone into your life who now belongs to you, who you now belong to. But your spouse, you shouldn't treat as a tool. You shouldn't treat them in a contemptuous way. And I think that Lauren and I setting our anniversary based on when we got married initially, trying to be intentional about that from the get-go, was good. That doesn't mean that we've always treated our marriage as if it is a net good. It doesn't mean that we've always remembered that we should be thankful in every instant for an Example, when we get on each other's nerves, when we annoy one another. But when we work together, when we pull in the same direction, we are annoying our enemy. I am convinced that's part of why the serpent in Genesis comes to the woman and tries to tempt Eve. You notice... And not to say that he didn't try with Adam, but you notice that the text doesn't record the serpent doing a beeline for Adam. The serpent comes to Eve and asks, Eve, hath God said? And Eve's a little bit muddied in her remembering what it is that God actually did say. And possibly that's because she heard it wrong from Adam and Adam did not accurately recount what it was that God had commanded. Maybe Adam added a little bit to it besides what God had said. But the serpent was trying to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and between Adam and Eve and God. Between the man and the woman, he wanted to drive a wedge. And between the two of them and God, he wanted to drive a wedge. And so he did. But we frustrate our enemy. We annoy our enemy When we resist the devil, when we resist his efforts to drive a wedge between us. I want to talk a little bit, real briefly, about the case for marriage, just to summarize some of what was in part one of this series. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. That's the first thing that God ever says in the text, is not good. So God makes Eve. He makes a helper suitable for Adam. And they're supposed to be a pair, they're supposed to be a team, they're a dynamic duo, they're supposed to be doing this creation mandate, this dominion mandate thing together. She is, if you will, the Robin to his Batman. And they're supposed to together be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Ideally, marriage is an opportunity for men and women to learn to submit themselves to someone else's needs and desires on a daily basis it's an opportunity to be loved and served also by someone else on a daily basis a healthy marriage a functional marriage is left foot right foot left foot right foot left foot right foot on those two things you're serving your spouse your spouse is serving you and together you're serving god in the way that you serve one another and we need to be mindful of that we don't when we're married ultimately belong to ourselves, we belong to our spouse. We belong in my case, to our wives. We belong, perhaps in your case, if you're a married woman, we belong to our spouse. In your case it would be your husband. You belong to your husband. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price is the other piece of that. We don't belong to ourselves even if we're single. We belong to God. And we don't belong to ourselves if we're married, we belong to God. And when we're married, we don't just belong to God, we also belong to our spouse. Speaking for the man's part, a woman of your very own can be very fine to be around, to look at on a daily basis. Now I grant, not all women are good looking, they're not all pleasing to the eye and the ear, but some are. Mine is. I think, I'm a little biased, but that's a blessing and a gift from God. The beauty of woman is a blessing. I think the beauty of man, or the glory of man, if you will, I'm always being corrected by my daughter anytime I teasingly ask if I'm beautiful too. I always ask her that with a smile, with a twinkle in my eye, and she scrunches up her nose and smiles real big and shakes her head. And dear sweet Evelyn says, No, you're not beautiful. You're handsome. Oh, okay. That's right. That's good. So men are handsome and women are beautiful. Men should not be beautiful. Men should be handsome. Got it. But you take Esther, for instance. Esther 2 7 says, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Read the book of Esther for more on where that arrangement goes. Long story short, the beauty of Esther ends up saving the Jews from persecution, from an ancient world-style pogrom, from an ancient holocaust, because Esther is beautiful and she has an inside track when it comes to the heart of the king. But we read in the text, Esther 2.7, quote, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Is that all right? Of course it's all right. Is that good? Of course it's good. You look at the reaction that Adam has when he wakes up from his operation. God removes a rib and makes a woman out of the rib of Adam. And Adam's reaction is poetic and it's beautiful and it's meaningful and it's poignant. And he says, Alas, here is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he names her Eve because she's the mother of all living. So his reaction, his response is a very warm one. He sees her as a part of himself from the beginning. She's distinct, she's separate, but she's also one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, that's beautiful, right? That's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing that God made. That is a blessing that adds to the beauty and the wonder of life when we embrace that truth. When we don't see that as annoying, we don't see that as repulsive, we don't see that as inherently defective. We see that as good, that sentiment, that mindset. Consider also the Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Here's poetry. And a good marriage is full of poetry, whether or not it's literally poetry. Sometimes it's just a crude kind of eloquence that comes with a genuineness of sentiment, a poetic kind of love and honoring of the other person. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So here the man is very complimentary of his bride, of his woman, his lady, Is very complimentary, and that's part of how he is giving honor to her is he's recognizing that he sees her as beautiful. He desires her. He appreciates her. He loves her. And that opportunity to love her is a blessing. It isn't just a blessing when she loves him. It's a blessing that he has this opportunity to love this woman of his very own. The fact that she is beautiful is a blessing to him. But the fact that he gets an opportunity to acknowledge, to appreciate her beauty is also a blessing to him. The fact that he has this opportunity to say these things to her, to communicate these sentiments to her, to recognize these things in her is a blessing. It's a blessing from God. But before we get any further into this topic and I don't know how many of these episodes I'll do before the barrage of other topics overwhelms me and my ADHD wanting to talk about everything compels me to switch back to politics or culture or some other matter. While we're talking about this, before we get any further, I want to address the elephant in the room And what I mean is I want to talk about what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. So I mentioned in part one of this series that someone I know recently asked me, why bother when it comes to marriage? Isn't it more trouble than it's worth? And that's my characterization, just to be clear. That person heard my first episode in this series, and they heard my asking the question in that way, why bother, and they objected. And I can understand the grounds for their objection. I see the question more broadly than just them asking it from other persons that I've talked with who are single, from having watched a video here recently summarizing the Migtown movement, men going their own way. I see that question as, why bother? Because I see it as a cost-benefit. And it is. There is cost to marriage. And there is benefit to marriage. And it's fair to do the cost-benefit analysis in a certain way. From a certain perspective, it is legitimate. Not in all perspectives is it legitimate or praiseworthy, but from a certain perspective, if it's handled in a certain way, there's nothing whatsoever wrong with doing the cost-benefit analysis on marriage. If you're single, now, if you're married, then be very, very careful doing the cost-benefit analysis on whether marriage is worth it because you're committed, you've made a vow, and you have a responsibility before God to be faithful and not faithless to the wife of your youth if you're a man. And to your husband, if you're a woman. But, this person I know who asked the question recently, they asked, what about Paul? Obviously, the scriptures don't command us, certainly not in the New Testament, to get married. We're not commanded to. It's not a sin if you remain single and you don't get married. So, what is so good about marriage? How would you make the case that marriage is a good thing that we ought to do, that we want to do, that we should do? Why is marriage a good thing? Why is it worth doing, engaging in, committing yourself to marriage? Nobody's making that case. They're just taking it for granted that it is a good thing. But I want to hear, why is this a good thing? If you ask over and over and over again, why did we get married? Why did we get married? Why did we get married? You have to, at a certain point, answer the question. You can't just ask the question and assume that The reasons are obvious to your audience. Well, that's fair. So let's talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16, and then we'll talk a little bit more about why it's good to get married, why marriage is a good thing. Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Cover your ears. We're talking about sex, by the way. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, each of one kind, and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband." and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This might seem like an odd passage to talk about with regards to to marriage particularly where divorce is concerned and where singleness is concerned but we can't understand properly what the bible has to say about marriage without delving into what the bible says about singleness and divorce they're all wrapped up together and in a day and age when so many marriages either end in divorce or don't even get off the ground because young men and young women are deciding it's not worth it to get married in the first place, we should strive not just to have a biblical mindset when it comes to marriage, but to have a biblical mindset when it comes to divorce and when it comes to singleness. It is legitimate to be single in some circumstances. It is legitimate to get a divorce in some circumstances. But I love here how Paul goes back and forth between saying this is the Lord's command on the one hand and let's distinguish, let's distinguish here this is God saying thou shalt and thou shalt not on the one hand and on the other hand Paul saying this is my position This is not the Lord commanding you, but this is my position. This is my personal preference. Take it for what it's worth. This is just me speaking. So, for instance, he says in verses 6 and 7, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. That is to say that singleness is a good gift that God gives to some people. Let me say that again. Singleness is a good gift that God gives to some people. That doesn't mean most. That certainly does not mean all, but some. Yet, when we read elsewhere, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to... To marry than to burn with passion I would say this is Garrett speaking not Paul and not the Lord but I would say that's most people most people if they don't marry are going to burn with passion or burn with lust they're going to be pining all the time for someone to have a hold of their very own and so where Paul says that it's His wish, his preference, personal preference, that everybody would be like he is, what he means is that singleness for him is freeing him up to pursue God's calling on his life without distraction. Singleness for Paul frees him up to go and evangelize and to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to travel around that he's unencumbered. He doesn't have to worry about pleasing his wife as he's trying to please the Lord. But someone will say here, ah, okay, so then it's holier. I'm a holier Christian if I do what the Roman Catholics have done for centuries based on their traditions, and I take a vow of celibacy. I am going to be more holy if I take a vow of celibacy and commit myself to God. For the men, they go into the priesthood or they become monks, For the women that become nuns, that's holier, right? Because Paul is holy, and he's holier, right? Mm, Hold on, that's so fast. When Paul gives qualifications for overseers and deacons to Timothy and to Titus in the New Testament, you will note, he says, that an overseer and a deacon must be the husband of one wife. This, as a sidebar, is further proof that only men should be overseers and deacons in the church. Only men should be in official leadership capacity over men and women in the church. Paul says elsewhere, I don't, permission. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but as in all the churches, she must remain silent. And if she has a question, she should ask her husband when she gets home. But staying on topic, not getting distracted by the shiny object, Paul says that an overseer and a deacon must be the husband of one wife, able to manage his own household well. If he cannot manage his own household well, then he will not be able to manage Christ's church well. He is disqualified. He hasn't demonstrated that he has the skills, the tools in his toolbox, the personality, the temperament, etc., etc., the maturity, the requisite godliness, He is not fit to lead in the church if he's not able to lead his wife and children well. What that should tell us is that marriage and parenting are not necessarily a distraction from serving the Lord. They're not necessarily a hindrance to you serving God faithfully. They may just be a very great training ground for you serving in the church. They may just be a very good test of whether you should serve in the church. Taking things out of the theoretical and bringing them into the firm ground of the practical and the real. If you're not able to be patient with your wife and to love her and to honor her, to serve her faithfully as Christ serves the church and served the church, even laying his life down for her. If you're not able to serve your wife then what makes you think you're able to serve the church? And why do you want that? Why do you desire that serving in the church when you're not even taking the opportunity to be a good steward of what has been entrusted to you in your wife? Are you trying to give as the Pharisees do, who want to be seen by men and they want to be praised by men? If so, you'll get your reward and don't expect an extra one from God because your motives are corrupt. That is not the kind of person that should serve in Christ's church in a leadership capacity. If your reasons for serving in the church are that you love God and you have opportunity and this is the way in which you can best serve, then prove it by faithfully serving day in and day out your wife and your children. And lo and behold, if you do that, and I'll speak from experience here. If you do that, if you love your wife and your children, you can serve by extension the people your wife and your children are going to interact with. And I'll give you some examples. Let's say that there is a woman, a young woman in the church who is struggling with a problem. She's hurting. She's upset. She's a damsel in distress. I am a married man. I have seven children with an eighth on the way. And I could go and I could try to serve that woman, find out what's wrong, help her, talk with her, but that might be a very dangerous proposition. There are very few things that men find more compelling and attractive and tempting than a damsel in distress. That's why damsels in distress show up so often in fairy tales and in all the most popular movies. The damsel in distress, except for where feminism has tried to make it the strong, ultra-competent, powerful woman who can do everything you can do better than you can do it, man, except in Captain Marvel's case. The damsel in distress is a familiar trope from forever because it's hardwired into our DNA. As men, it is in our DNA to be attracted to the damsel in distress. So, hypothetically, we've got a young woman in the church. She's got an issue. She's got something she's struggling with. She's hurting. She's needing help. Do I go running off like Don Quixote tilting at windmills to save the day? Or if I'm wise, if I'm being sober and vigilant, Do I chat with my wife and say, I think you maybe should go talk with her and see how she's doing. I think there's an opportunity there for you to help that young woman and you're in a better position to help her than I am. And it would be safer for you to help her than it would be for me to help her. I'll watch the kiddos if you need to go have coffee with her. I'll take care of things here and I'll give you some advice. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I think you maybe should look for or pursue but you're in a better position to do that. If I'm loving my wife well and I'm building her up and I am helping her to grow and I'm making space for her to go and help that younger woman, then I am serving the church and nobody has to give me credit for that. Nobody has to say, hey Garrett, a boy, pat me on the back, well done, good job, except God is going to. If I'm doing it in secret, because the really important thing to me is serving God. If my priority is actually serving God, then God knows. I don't need to do that out front. I don't need to get the credit for it. I don't need everybody to clap for me and give me a standing ovation and tell me what a good boy I am. I need to do this because I have an audience of one and God sees and God has put that on my heart. If God has given me the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, He Himself dwells in me as a believer and He's given me His Word, I see opportunity for my wife to go and help that young woman, hypothetically, then I can serve the church by loving my wife. So also with my children, I see somebody else's children hurting. There's a problem there. There's something not right. I don't know if it's neglect. I don't know if it's abuse. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's nothing at fault in the part of the parents, but it wouldn't necessarily be the wisest course for me to go jumping in and intervening. It might be, depending on what it is, but it also might not be, depending on what it is. There is an issue there. There's something going on. That kid's struggling with something right now. I could jump in and risk making that kid extremely uncomfortable, making their parents extremely uncomfortable. Or possibly, depending on the circumstances, I could take some of my boys aside or I could take my daughter aside and I could say, here's what I'm seeing. I want you to try and come alongside that kid over there and encourage them see how they're doing, ask how they're doing, see if they want to talk about it. If they tell you they're struggling with, like a recent example, having recently tried to kill themselves in recent months, come back, tell me what you find out, and I'm going to help you think through this. I'm going to help you think through a way to counsel them and encourage them and tell them what is true and good and comfort them So that they don't think that life is a lost cause, right? Marriage, ideally, is every bit as good. I won't say better necessarily, because that's up to God to decide. If He gives somebody the blessing of singleness, then that is as good as it gets. And if He gives somebody the blessing of marriage, then that is as good as it gets. But marriage can be every bit as good an opportunity for a man or woman who loves God, who loves Jesus to serve God and to serve their local church and to serve the people around them as singleness. Depending on your circumstances, your particular circumstances, marriage can be a better way to serve God and the people around you than singleness is. Depending on your circumstances, singleness can be a better way for you to serve God. It really depends on what God's calling on your particular situation is. But suffice to say, marriage can be a fantastic tool for advancing the kingdom, for honoring God, for serving God. I got to leave it there for this episode. We will come back to this. We will continue on. I have much, much more to say on this. But for now, thank you for listening. As always, until next time, God bless.